Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi everyone, Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. Are we doing a Granger Danger segment here? No, 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 no. We're just setting the mood for today's episode about the Gothic in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Okay, but... Marcel, this is the sorting chat segment. We don't usually start talking about the book until the revision segment. This is very true, but we can still set the mood. Okay, well, in that case, let's talk about scary stuff. And truly nothing is scarier to me than the fact that when this episode is released, it is going to be 2021. Oh, the future. I am, let's be honest, (laughs) extremely scared of the future. You know what I find even scarier than the future, Hannah? What is that? The past. (laughs) So I would say two out of three of the scariest things there are. The third being, of course. Ghost children. Ghost children. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Do you want to hear a story? Yeah, I really do. Is it about ghost children? It's about live children, but who are terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Because live children can be as scary as ghost children. I believe it. So my mom was babysitting her two great nieces. And they were at the time, I think like maybe four and seven. And my mom had like, you know, tucked them into their bed and whatever. They were staying over at her house. And then my mom had, like, done her regular, like, end of the evening things, you know, maybe watched an episode of television or something, got ready for bed, went to sleep, and then at some point woke up, opened her eyes, and the two children 
were standing no. beside her bed just watching her while she was no. sleeping. <laughs> and she was ah. <laughs> like, uh, hi, girls. What, uh, what do you need? <laughs> Truly, just like a child watching you sober-faced <laughs> through a doorway. It's just like, why are you so scary? I don't understand it. I don't know why. They're truly the scariest things. Yeah, they really are. Like humans, but smaller. It's just weird. Maybe because they are themselves a bundle of future. You, you know what? That's it. It's absolutely. It's the it's the the terrifying nature of the future. Just uh, just compressed down into into a human shape. I love that. Like we are marking the new year by discussing the Gothic, because truly I loathe the usual. January energy of self-improvement discourse. It's always the most fat phobic month of the year. It's always oh, God. a real downer to be a fat person in January. So I say uh, the new tradition for marking the beginning of a new Gregorian calendar year should be scary stories and gothic novels. Incredible. I love it. Hey, listeners, if you enjoy our banter and want to hear more, check out our Patreon. (laughs) You can get access to things like unedited episodes from our original run, new installments of Which Please Tell Me, our Q&A segment, and even bonus interviews with some of the smartest folks we know. Our most recent bonus interview, our December bonus interview was with the no longer a baby hippogriff herself and in real time we haven't recorded it yet but from the perspective of January 2021 Hannah I feel confident saying that it was truly incredible yeah speaking of scary children (laughs) (laughs) the future Is it cold in here or do I have goosebumps because the sorting chat is haunting me? (laughs) I don't know. But speaking of hauntings, it's time to dig up our previous lessons and get down to revision. Yay! So Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets has so far given us the opportunity to get into feminist literary criticism and queer theory to excellent foundations for our conversation today about gothic Mm -hmm. literature. We started off by looking at feminism as a movement seeking social, political, and economic equality for all persons, regardless of sex and gender. We're going to keep coming back to that excellent definition because it is foundational. We talked also about the impossibility of understanding gender in isolation and the importance of always centering race, class, disability, and other social hierarchies in our feminist analyses. And then we looked at how an intersectional feminist lens can open up texts at both the micro and the macro level. Spoiler alert, we definitely (gasps) won't be able to talk about gothic conventions without also talking about feminism. For sure, it's just going to keep coming back. (laughs) Hard to believe. Like a ghost. Ah! (laughs) 
We also talked about how new schools of theory have branched out of and in response to feminist theory because, surprise, surprise, there are some issues that feminist theory by itself just doesn't adequately explain, which is why we then turn to queer theory. Ta-da! Ta-da! One of the central ideas of queer theory is heteronormativity, which refers to the institutions, structures of understanding, and practical orientations that make heterosexuality seem not only coherent, but also privileged. We also talked about how queer theory might let us read Hogwarts as a kind of queer elsewhere that readers long to escape to. And this reading then let us explore the possibility of both Harry and Tom Riddle as queer characters. Maybe our gothic reading will also be a little queer? Only time will tell. The future. It feels really likely to me, somehow. Yeah, there's a good chance. So both of these theories are pretty high level, right? We give you really broad introductions to them. And we're going to keep drilling down into them and looking at more specific aspects of the books as we do. But rest assured, feminist and queer theory are almost always going to be in our back pockets as we read, including when we turn to thinking about Harry Potter as gothic literature. But before we dig into the gothic and what exactly it means as a genre... Uh, we're going to talk about some of the, like, gothic-ish things we noticed on this read-through of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Secrets are gothic, <laughs> right? See, oh, 100%. Totally. Okay. Absolutely. Now, Hannah, you know that I love a chart. Oh. <laughs> but do you know what I love even more? What? A game. Ooh. So... Before we get into what gothic means in the context of literary genre, we're going to play a game that I call goth or nah. (laughs) (laughs) I'll toss a bunch of things from Harry Potter at you and Hannah, based on your instincts, I want you to tell me which of these things would fit into the genre of the gothic. Okay. I mean, this sounds great, but one small problem is... um... You haven't mm-hmm. you haven't told me what the gothic is yet. <laughs> That's okay. I just want you to use your heart. Let your heart be your guide. You know, based on like what you've seen in movies and stuff, like just what you what you feel. And listeners, you can totally play along too. Oh yeah, totally. Just get in touch with us and, and tell me all of the reasons I'm wrong. <laughs> Okay, are you ready? I'm ready. We're going to play. Is it goth or nah? (laughs) Okay. Ready? Okay, I'm ready. Privet Drive. Nah. House Elves. Ooh, goth? The Burrow. Goth. Ooh. Nah? I had said nah, but I don't know. We didn't say goth. I mean, it has a poltergeist. It has a ghoul. A ghoul's goth. Well, yeah, a ghoul is goth. I mean, this is a vital question. Is the house is the house that contains? I mean, it's a it's a ramshackle old home that's been in the family for many generations, and it has a ghoul in the attic. I feel like if like all of the Weasleys went out and you were home alone in the burrow, like during a rainstorm. Mm-hmm. But then is it a rainstorm and being alone that are goth and the burrow is just kind of neutral? Okay. All right. 
<laughs> unclear. Continue. Unclear. Unclear. This is this is good though. This is good. The Hogwarts Express. Noth. Hogwarts. Goth. Nearly headless Nick's death day party. Oh, so goth. <laughs> the gothest. The gothest. Moaning Myrtle. Oh, so goth. Extremely goth. Quidditch. Noth. Sports are the least goth thing there is. <laughs> we all know. We all, we all know that goths hate sports. So. Oh my god, a goth sports team in general would be so charming that it just fundamentally couldn't be goth. <laughs> Ironically, while I feel like playing Quidditch is an extremely noth thing to do in the books, I think playing Quidditch in real life might yeah. actually be like a pretty goth energy. <laughs> I feel like a non-zero sum of people have played Quidditch while wearing black lipstick. <laughs> Possibly in cosplay as a ghost. I don't know. Who knows, right? The world is a rich cornucopia of goth and noth. Goth and noth, the two two things. All right, I got more. I've got more. All right. Okay. Draco Malfoy. Mm. Mmm. Mmm, goth. Gilderoy Lockhart. I would say... Oh, no, he's a man who seems charming at first, but then he has terrible, dark and violent secrets that he has been hiding. So that's very goth. That is an extremely gothic thing to do. That is very goth. Snape. So goth. Like the like if goth, if gothicness was a person, it surely would be. Snape, like just swooping around darkened corridors in black robes, scaring children. Super goth. While also having a dark and secret past. Just all wildly goth. Tom Riddle's diary. Oh, so goth. So goth. So many things in this book are goth. Yeah. The lavatory. I mean, specifically the haunted one. (laughs) (laughs) Or just like bathrooms in general (laughs) i would like to hear your answer to bathrooms in general bathrooms in general not (laughs) bathrooms that are that are haunted by tragic child ghosts and also have secret entryways into (laughs) subterranean worlds containing giant deadly snakes god but potpourri (laughs) I, you know, I think potpourri is pretty goth. It's the ghost of flowers, so. Yeah, yeah. The ghost and corpses of flowers. Wow. Those like crocheted, like Barbie dress toilet paper roll covers. Definitely not. So goth. So goth. <laughs> it sounds like maybe bathrooms in general are, in fact, pretty goth. It might just be goth. It might just be. Okay. I got just a couple more. Okay. Parcel tongue. Goth. The Chamber of Secrets. So goth. Ginny. Ooh, Ginny herself, Noth. What is done to Ginny in this book, goth? Ah, so then that leads me to the final one. The memory of Tom Riddle draining the life out of Ginny as she lays unconscious on the cold, wet floor of the Chamber of Secrets. Goth? Like, literally couldn't be more goth. (laughs) Mm, Couldn't be more goth unless it was Snape, who we've established is the most goth. 
the most goth. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> As is typical of me, I find myself the most drawn to the things that felt liminal mm-hmm. in between goth enough. Like that I am interested in spending more time sort of looking at the many very gothic tropes in this book because there is so much gothic stuff happening. But the house elves, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, there are things about them that are gothic. Mm -hmm. They're being figured as kind of monstrous, which they kind of are. But also Dobby is so like (laughs) sweet and goofy. I know his name is Dobby. Like that's the most Noth name that I can think of. Yeah. He's not a scary character. No. Right? Like children love him. He is an adorable character. Mm -hmm. But there is also something a little bit goth, you know, particularly in his handling in this book. Mm Mm-hmm. Totally, yeah. And uh, the fact that, like, only rich, old, aristocratic families have house elves, you know? Very goth. 100%. This is, in general, the idea of, like, old buildings full of secrets. It's just (laughs) feels, feels to me paradigmatically goth. Like... The gothic is about old buildings full of secrets. Yeah. But I don't know why. Oh, I can't wait to tell you. This is the interesting thing for me is this, <laughs> as you gave me this list of things in the books, I had very instinctive reactions to what was goth and what was not. <laughs> but I actually can't account for where those reactions came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I don't know why I know what's goth. I mean, I think in part it's maybe because the gothic as a genre is so self-paradizing. Like it is itself so over the top. It is remarkable to me that the gothic is not inherently campy, but it's not. But camp is not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, I I desperately want to know more about gothic literature and its features and and what's going on in all of these goth categories. Incredible. Well, let's get into it. It's a good thing it's too dark and stormy to go outside because we need to descend a winding staircase into the catacombs under the library. That's right, it's time for Transfiguration Class, the segment in which we light the candles, teetering dangerously close to stacks of ancient parchment, and crack open a few dusty old tomes to uncover the secrets of our latest critical tool, the Gothic. Woo! Unlike previous episodes where we introduced critical theories to help unpack the Harry Potter world, Today, we're diving into a category of literature, or what we call a genre, in order to see how it influences the text. So I have a question right off the bat, which is, you know, genre is a way of of categorizing and organizing literature. You know, it helps us know where to shelve it in a bookstore. (laughs) But 
how can looking at a genre help us to read a text critically? Oh, great question, Hannah. Love that question. So genres are like storytelling tools. They provide sets of conventions and codes for the author to use. And the Gothic is a great example of this because, surprise, surprise, those codes and conventions are... Scary. Yes. And also political. So, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, everything is always already political, but... And always already scary. And always already scary. (laughs) Before we get into the details of what Gothic literature is, we should start by distinguishing it from the genre known as horror. So many of our listeners are probably more familiar with horror as a genre than they are with the gothic, but the two are very closely related. We might think of them as siblings in a long literary tradition where gothic, the senior, is reclusive and brooding, where horror, the junior, acts out for attention. (laughs) I love that. So sometimes they collaborate Sometimes neither will have anything to do with the other, and sometimes people confuse which one is which. Just like all siblings. What a perfect analogy. (laughs) Okay, I found a delightfully brief and very useful explanation of the difference between horror and the gothic by blogger Connie Poulter, and I'm going to paraphrase it just for clarity. Mm -hmm. The gothic as a genre is the combination of terror and romance. And by romance, I mean a story that is an adventure or a quest narrative, not necessarily anything about love or sex. Mm -hmm. The Gothic might incorporate haunted houses, vampires, ghosts, ruins, castles, frail women, religious characters, and settings. The Gothic predominantly uses the supernatural to create a sense of terror. For example, the film The Woman in Black, which we watched way, way back on Halloween 2015 and live tweeted, which some of our longtime listeners might recall. Okay, so that right off the bat, I'm like, I can see how that is gothic, you know, scary old house. Why isn't it also horror? Ah, okay. Because I was scared when I watched it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So you are supposed to be scared and the horror genre can and often does also involve supernatural stuff. And sometimes the two are sort of combined, right? Like sometimes you can have like a gothic horror film or Mm, something. But horror as a genre can also be entirely non-supernatural. And so... Poulter suggests the movie Scream as a good example because nothing in the film is supernatural. It's just instead relying on shocking and gruesome human behavior to generate a sense of terror. And I think we might also consider the movie Get Out, which also draws on the very real exploitation of black bodies under white supremacy rather than the supernatural to terrify filmgoers. And so there are elements of the movie Get Out that we could think of as gothic, but it is not in and of itself a gothic film. What about Jane Eyre, which feels to me like a canonically gothic novel Mm -hmm. with the trope of the woman in the attic being something I think that we, we think about as very gothic and she's in this old house and there are secrets and noises and she doesn't know the origin of them. But it turns out that the origin is entirely non-supernatural and is just good old-fashioned misogyny. <laughs> good old fa- 
old-fashioned misogyny. Which is scary, but not supernatural. So I would say that, yeah, that Jane Eyre is gothic and not horror because horror as we know it today is largely the result of pulp magazine genre creation. So pulp magazines whose popularity in the 1930s and 40s led to the creation of a bunch of specialized genres. And so horror does, as a genre, have a lot of close sibling-like ties to the gothic, but it is different in the way that it is executed and in terms of its like historical location. So Jane Eyre is totally gothic, but mainly because it predates the existence of horror as a genre. Horror as a genre doesn't really exist until the 1930s, 1940s. Before that, everything that's creepy and scary is just gothic. And then horror sort of emerges out of that. So horror is newer, gothic is older. And even though these genres like developed and and became more specialized, they still interact and play with each other, which is why you can have a horror movie about aliens, like the movie Alien, or a gothic movie that merges with fantasy, which is generally called dark fantasy, like Pan's Labyrinth. But I digress. <laughs> so this is a thing about genre, right? Like genres are always like fluid and boundary subverting and you can probably look at examples that feel like they're pretty pure examples of particular genres but there's always going to be interesting stuff that is like playing at the boundaries between different genres and sometimes those are the most interesting stories exactly right like that's one of the reasons why a movie like pan's labyrinth is so interesting and remarkable as opposed to like the Lord of the Rings, which I love close to my heart, but is not as interesting as a filmic experience yes. than something that sort of crosses genre. Great. Amazing. So this is probably true of all literary genres, but we're just talking about the Gothic right now. The Gothic takes different shapes across different national and political contexts. Scholars often point to what's called the long 18th century as the Gothic novel's point of origin with two important texts. There's Edmund Burke's Philosophical Treatise, a philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and beautiful, which I have not read, published in 1757. And then Horace Walpole's novel, The Castle of Otranto, which was published in 1764, which I have read, but barely remember. So there's some rooting of the Gothic in our ideas of the sublime and, you know, our response to different kinds of aesthetics and our response to mystery and things that are unknowable. Yes. And we could root that in 18th century aesthetic theory if we wanted to <laughs> but we don't want to because none of us are willing to read any Edmund Burke <laughs> no. so <laughs> no. instead we're gonna root it in other things exactly <laughs> great I love it so the literary tradition that sort of follows these two important early texts include novels like Matthew Lewis's The Monk Anne Radcliffe's The Italian, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and indeed, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Yes, absolutely. Okay, I immediately, my brain is starting to do all of these like, okay, so the Gothic is 
intimately tied up with a historical moment that saw shifts in gender relations Mm -hmm. and anxieties about the new woman and the emergence of enlightenment science that was challenging how people thought about the definition of the human and like racial politics, right? Like Mm, Dracula is all about anxiety over the arrival of the foreigner. So like right away, just even that list of books, I'm like, oh, the Gothic is doing a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, the Gothic, super political, right? So the Gothic becomes this tool that writers use in order to explore these political issues using really intense metaphors and kind of like grotesque imagery or experimenting with different ideas of what is monstrous and what is monstrous human behavior, that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. So if I were to sit down and write a gothic novel tomorrow, what kinds of characteristics might I include? Okay. Well, It's going to be really important that you set your novel in either some kind of ruin, in a monastery maybe, or a castle, or catacombs, or a crypt, you know, something very creepy and old and full of secrets. (laughs) Great. Did you know that under Paris, there is a network of catacombs that are decoratively walled with human remains? Gross. Yeah, they Paris is so old that during the I think it was during the Victorian period that they had to like empty out a bunch of the graveyards because oh they were like over full and they took all of these human bones and made like decorative murals in these catacombs with them. It's just like cool skull patterns. Paris is even more goth than Snape. You heard it here first. So, so- So goth. Anyway, that's where I'm going to set my gothic novel. That's incredible. A very good idea. So then the next thing you're going to need are some characters. And the characters might include monks or nuns, probably aristocrats, definitely some hysterical women. And the most important character is going to be a secret or a bunch of secrets. You're going to need a lot of secrets. Okay. I'm going to have no actual human characters and only secrets. (laughs) Just all secrets. I'm ready. (laughs) This is going to be a great book. So the Gothic has historically been a popular genre for writers because of its ability to represent what I'm going to call commonplace evils. And so this is sort of what we were talking about, like the political stuff, right? So being able to use powerful and very impactful metaphors to get across these various ideas to sort of challenge new ideas or even old commonplaces. And so just as an example, many writers across the last three centuries have used the Gothic to represent women's experiences under patriarchy. Like Jane Eyre. Like Jane Eyre, exactly. Cool. Yeah, but... This won't surprise anybody. As we've already established, we can't separate out gender from race or class or ability or indeed even nationality. And so as a result, we see different styles of Gothic literature developing in response to different commonplace evils associated with different and specific geopolitical locations. Okay, so like it makes a lot of sense that 
you know, somebody like Charlotte Bronte is using the Gothic to deal with being a woman living under the patriarchy. Yeah. In her particular historical context. But that's not going to be the horror or the, the scary thing that other people are using metaphors to grapple with. Yeah, exactly. So like Charlotte Bronte is thinking about white British women of a lower middle class stature and their relationship to the aristocracy. But that's not something that even in the 20th century, like Toni Morrison, those are not the experiences that she is articulating when she writes, for example, the novel Beloved, which people have described as being a gothic novel that deals specifically with racial and gendered issues. And similarly, if you're writing from a different landscape or different geographical setting, you're maybe not going to have monasteries and castles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In Canadian literature, we have this thing called the Prairie Gothic because there's a lot of old abandoned sort of tumbling down farmhouses spread out across the prairie that are just full of ghosts and secrets. But it's mm -hmm. a far cry from a monastery or a catacomb. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes in Canadian literature, the most gothic thing is just the sound of the wind. <laughs> <laughs> the dust that sweeps across your front porch. <laughs> And so another thing to remember about the Gothic, and again, this is another one of those things that maybe seems obvious, but it's important to keep in mind that this is intentional. It's sort of the point. But the Gothic as a genre is deeply affective. And so that means that it's intended to make you feel things. And in particular, you're supposed to feel terror and or disgust. So as critical readers, we need to turn our attention towards who and what represents evil in the text and indeed who or what constitutes monstrosity in the text. So yeah, in the book Gothic Literature, Andrew Smith points out that, quote, the demonization of particular types of behavior makes visible the covert political views of a text. So how do we critically interrogate those representations, Hannah? I mean, we use, we use theory. That's what we do. Theory! That's what we do, right? Yeah. Theory! Okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, this is great. So, so I feel like examining the Gothic in some ways is about drilling down on a set of tropes, a set of tropes that have emerged out of a particular genre and its traditions, but like tropes, which as we've established are things, <laughs> the Gothic and the way it uses metaphor and the way that it constructs monstrosity and the way that it sort of creates affective responses to make us feel terrified or disgusted will always have a kind of ideological thrust to it. It's always going to be making some sort of political argument about, you know, if something is unnatural, then that is making an argument about what is natural. If something feels unsettling, that is making an argument about what is normal, what is settled, what is comfortable. So there is always sort of this critique 
embedded in making things look wrong or off or uncanny or scary. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. So like similar to the way that we might make jokes, we can also think of gothic metaphors as punching up or punching down. And so like something that is monstrous and should indeed be interrogated through metaphor is patriarchy and cis heteronormative patriarchy. And so you can definitely write a compelling and horrifying and disgusting gothic novel about the patriarchy. But maybe something that we don't necessarily need to represent as monstrous is something like disability. Oh, yeah. Oh. Or race. I mean, the ableism built into so many gothic tropes, Mm -hmm. right? And the way that monstrosity is figured. We talked about this with the third movie in the Harry Potter series, uh, the way that in so many moments, disability is used to signify something gothic or creepy that is happening on screen. The other example that comes to mind right away of a sort of punching down use of the gothic is a classic Canadian novel called Wakusta, which Mm -hmm. is a 19th century novel, I believe. And it is a full-on attempt to take all of the tropes and conventions of the gothic and use them to tell a story about white Canadians coming into conflict with indigenous people and with the general horrors of the Canadian wilderness. It's one of the texts that the whole idea of the garrison mentality came out of, which is the idea that Canadian literature is all about like white people hiding in a fort from all of the scary things that are trying to kill them. And the like primary figure of gothicness, which is Wakusta himself, is this like scary, monstrous, semi-supernatural indigenous man. So that's a great example of the way that like sort of the gothic is being used as a tool set in that novel for the author to grapple with something. But that grappling is being done entirely in a punching down fashion. Yeah. Okay. So as you might notice, my instinct when we start talking about a new theory is to reach for texts right away because I want to like see how it works. But instead of talking about a bunch of books that aren't Harry Potter, (laughs) I bet we could talk about the gothic in this book that we're talking about in this episode. What a great idea. I love it. Let's do it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Grab your smelling salts and head over to the fainting couch because it's time to take your owls. We're using our critical reading skills to look at the Chamber of Secrets as a gothic AF text. Incredible. So we are trying to wrap our heads here around what 
ideologies or politics are at work in the various uses of gothic tropes and genre conventions in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. We've noticed that there's a lot, Mm -hmm. which is a good first step in any reading is to notice things. Making a list, great way to start off with your brainstorming, you know? A hundred percent. And we figured out our theory and now and now we're trying to figure out like <laughs> what's actually going on here. I think one of the ways that we can sort of like draw some comparisons to our previous episode where we talked about Lockhart as being a sort of like queer coded villainous icon, we can sort of rethink about that in terms of the way in which he is represented as evil. So like in the context of the Gothic, he isn't necessarily evil because he's a plagiarist. He's evil because he is like an aristocratic dandy who has no moral compass and indeed may in fact harbor a terrible secret about his heterosexuality evil i mean immediately because my brain refuses to stick on the book that we're talking about but i'm like (laughs) oh in that sense quirrell is also a really interesting gothic figure totally yeah right he's sort of like this man with a terrible secret who is in some way sort of inflected with foreignness, which figures in the Gothic often are. They've often like been somewhere else and brought something back with them. But that's also kind of true of Lockhart, that part of how he has sort of built up this reputation for himself is that he is so well-traveled, that he is this kind of wealthy seeming aristocratic seeming figure who has traveled all over the place has had these encounters supposedly with werewolves and hags and vampires and has brought all of these sort of gothic forces like back with him into hogwarts but where a more sort of traditional take on a gothic story might be like oh the real secret is that he's actually a werewolf oh no wrong book again (laughs) is every defense against the dark arts professor a gothic trope (laughs) i mean maybe yeah it might actually be the case Let's keep coming back to this. With Snape, the most gothic of them all, yeah. like trying desperately to become the Defense Against the Dark Arts yeah. teacher. Oh, I'm into no. it. I love it. He also has a terrible secret, like Quirrell has a terrible secret and Lupin has a terrible secret. Every Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher has a terrible secret, but in Lockhart's case, I mean, on the one hand, his terrible secret is that he is an imposter, that he is not who he seems to be, right? Masks and and veils, and this is all very gothic stuff, and that he has been lying to everybody. But the way the text communicates to us that he is untrustworthy is by making his masculinity uncanny or untrustworthy. It's using that we are supposed to sense something is wrong, 
How does a text signal to us that something is wrong? It establishes a norm and then shows how things are are varying from that norm. Yes, yes, exactly. So the tools it uses to show us that something is wrong tell us a lot about the norms that it's establishing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so then we can sort of build from that and think about, like, Snape in the same way. Like, I mean, he's definitely not figured as necessarily queer but he is figured as being untrustworthy and sneaky Mm -hmm. and um full of secrets (laughs) yes and we've established that a lot of the tropes that are used to make him seem untrustworthy are anti-semitic and racializing tropes that you know harken back to a novel like dracula Mm mm-hmm Yeah, definitely. Where it's like, who is this untrustworthy outsider and what terrible ideas about women being allowed to vote is he bringing with him? (laughs) No! (laughs) So another really sort of, I think, key way that the Gothic is playing out in this novel is what is happening to both Ginny and Harry in terms of these two wholesome characters encountering supernatural or unnatural forces that pull them into this dark world of secrets that they have to come to understand. And in that sense, it's really interesting to think of how of how the novel as a fantasy novel, needs to work pretty hard to tell us what is a normal scary thing and what is a unnatural scary thing. Mm-hmm. So that there is something that is surface level gothic about nearly headless Nick's death day party. That it's got a lot of the trappings of the gothic. It's a bunch of ghosts. The food is really gross. <laughs> There's maggots. That's all stuff that's like, ooh, scary. Yeah. But I don't want to say there's no metaphor that that's standing in for because obviously that scene is readable in various ways. But it is not marked by the text as a problem in the mm-hmm. same way that Harry being able to hear voices, mysterious voices in the walls telling him to kill yeah. is marked as a problem to the point that we have Ron say, even in the wizarding world, hearing voices is not a good sign. Yeah. The text needs to like have a character step in and say, I know we're in a creepy castle. And sometimes there are ghosts and our professor looks like he just jumped straight out of a gothic novel. But you hearing voices and this mysterious journal that has a magical presence that we have no way of understanding, those are bad magic, not the okay regular magic that is just how Hogwarts works. Yeah, my immediate go-to with Harry being able to hear the basilisk and Ron saying it's never a good sign to hear voices is immediately 
like looking at, and I know we're going to talk about disability later, but immediately thinking about that as using disability or neurodivergence as a sort of quick go-to for monstrosity, right? So like, it's not even that it happens and the reader infers it. We have a character, as you pointed out, just straight up telling us that like, oh, this thing that is not normal is bad and wrong. So it's also really interesting to think about what this book is doing with monstrosity. Because there are a lot of monstrous or potentially monstrous figures, some of whom are Frankenstein's monster-esque in the sense that they are sort of monstrous quasi-human or non-human figures who are meant to challenge our notion Mm -hmm. of the human and apply pressure to our thinking about who we include in the category of the human and who we don't in a way that is not unlike our conversation about animal studies. And then other figures are monstrous in the sense that they function as metaphors for problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And those are not the same use of monstrosity, Mm -hmm. but they like overlap and blur all over the place in this book. So... You know, for example, we might look at Dobby as a character who is in some ways figured as monstrous. You know, Harry calls them it when they first encounter. You know, Dobby is constantly doing things that endanger Harry, showing up out of nowhere, um, causing supernatural and unpredictable events to befall Harry in a series of mysterious accidents of unknown origin. But at the end of the day, he's a sympathetic character, not unlike Frankenstein's monster, who is also in the original novel, a fairly sympathetic character who is sort of pushing us to think about like, you know, where do we get the idea about who's monstrous in the first place? And why do we decide that some lives are valued more than others Mm. and then on the other hand we've got like the basilisk which is a monster (laughs) and it is a monster (laughs) that stands in for well what do you think the what is the basilisk a metaphor for um racial purity yeah perfect for (laughs) for the sort of fascination with racial purity and pure-bloodedness that you know Tom Riddle is is so obsessed with and that Voldemort ultimately is also so obsessed with almost as a kind of compensation for his own past Mm -hmm. but the basilisk becomes a sort of unnuanced representation of the monstrosity of that drive to cleanse Hogwarts of all of the muggle-born whatever impure students that it as a monster is just a over-the-top metaphor for how horrifying that desire is mm-hmm. yeah totally what about the giant spiders oh <laughs> oh gosh what a good question because also monsters also monsters the basilisk is their mortal enemy or their only mm-hmm. known enemy or whatever it is. 
and they flee from it, but they are also terrifying. So they also like very powerfully invoke terror and disgust Mm -hmm. in the reader. Mm -hmm. Oh boy. It's interesting because they are, the spiders are associated with Hagrid, whereas the basilisk is associated with Voldemort and Voldemort is the villain and the basilisk is the big monster, Mm -hmm. the like secret monster that needs to be found and destroyed in the sort of quest like romantic way that you were talking about is also being sort of wrapped up in the gothic whereas Hagrid is somebody who again sort of Frankenstein's monster style is misunderstood and constructed as monstrous via his rejection from mainstream wizarding society and the way that he is constantly being scapegoated both in the past and in the present and so We have throughout the book these kinds of like liminal monster figures whose monstrosity is meant to signal to us that we need to like pause and rethink normativity. We need to pause and rethink who is included and who is excluded. We need to pause and rethink how we define the monstrous in the first place. And then other monsters who are like no but that's but that's just bad yeah one should not pause and rethink the basilisk okay so the way that you describe the spider's relationship to hagrid and hagrid's own position in the wizarding world and the wizarding world's normative standards i wonder if we can think of the spider's and the basilisk as being at sort of like opposite ends of an acceptable spectrum They're not opposite ends. The spiders are somewhere in the middle. (laughs) Actually, okay, so here's what I'm thinking, and I'm not sure what kind of, is it like, I'm thinking of a bell curve is what I'm thinking of. So like, (laughs) so like we've got the basilisk on the one side, which is the racial purity side. And then there's the nice bell where it's like, okay, well, all of these things in the bell are acceptable. But then if you go too far into the other side, well, that's just unacceptable. That is too accepting. Giant spiders are unacceptable. You cannot accept giant spiders. Oh, yeah. It's like um, the spectrum is from being not accepting and being too accepting. Yes, yes. On one end, you've got the monstrosity of not accepting anyone who varies from your idea of the norm. And that's, you know, the basilisk is the monster that represents that. And then on the other end, you've got this idea of being like, Actually, you can be too accepting. Don't make friends with giant spiders, Hagrid. That's the other end. And then somewhere in the middle, we've got like, you know, the ghosts that our protagonists try to make friends with. And they're sort of half-hearted attempts to be nice to Moaning Myrtle because like, you know, she's she's kind of a monster, but also... You know, she's also a person. So like, or Dobby, right? Who is like, who is a problem because of all of the chaos he causes, but like also needs to be understood. That is so interesting (laughs) to think about the book as creating a spectrum of monstrosity that implicitly argues that there is such thing as being too accepting. Because I think that resonates in really interesting ways with Rowling's own politics. 
Yeah. Not to get too, like, authorial intent about it, but if we frame the book as sort of being embedded in an ideology of liberalism, which is all about tolerance, right, and valuing tolerance, the whole discourse of tolerance always has extremes it cannot accommodate because tolerance like liberal tolerance is not about radical inclusion it's about like if you are enough like me I can incorporate you into my version of liberal society but if you are too other you must still be excluded and so it's all about that sort of boundariedness and so what we see happening with all of these gothic monsters is that they are subverting boundaries which is a very gothic thing to do is like passing through all of these boundaries and in order to re-establish normalcy by the end of the novel things need to be put back in their place and there is kind of this liberal impulse in the novel where it wants some of the monsters at the end to be put back in a place that is a place of inclusion rather than a place of exclusion, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, which is why so many people read the Harry Potter books as having this sort of generally liberal and inclusive ethos because they're like, oh, you know, you see this character as monstrous, but actually he, he can and should be included and be part of the world of these protagonists. Mm -hmm. But other monsters are too monstrous and, and must be kept out. Yeah. And like, well, we might tolerate the fact that they exist in the Forbidden Forest, but you can't come into the space that I occupy because it makes me feel uncomfortable. Yeah, you can't be in the home. You know, Hogwarts itself standing in as like the home space. And so what needs to be like kept out of that home space to make it safe for those who are there? And it's kind of, you know, like a... a wacky mishmash of (laughs) ghosts and not goblins they're not allowed in but house elves Mm -hmm. yes Mm -hmm. yeah you know half giants for sure but full giants no like there are all of these boundaries of like who's human enough or who's safe enough like the fact that Ginny as a real paragon of somebody who is meant to be at home and safe at Hogwarts that she is like very much a child in this book she's brand new she's vulnerable she's scared Hogwarts is supposed to be the place that keeps her safe and the fact that like this monstrosity gains access to her you know becomes another one of the central signs for us that something is wrong because, like, our women folk are endangered. <laughs> she has four older brothers at Hogwarts who are supposed to be keeping an eye on her. <laughs> and yet somehow she gets whisked away to a dark and scary underground cavern with a giant snake. <laughs> yeah. And a, and a bad man. And a bad man. Of uncertain origin. Of uncertain origin who is literally draining the life out of her. I love this. This has gotten us somewhere that I had never thought of before. And somewhere that I would like us to keep thinking about and coming back to. Because the idea of 
natural or inherent limitations for what can and should be included in an ideal liberal society is, I think, a thing that's going to keep coming back in these books. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The gift of literary criticism. Incredible. Just keeps giving. Just Just keeps keeps giving. giving. (laughs) Thank you, witches, for joining us for episode nine of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to notsorryproductions.com or ohwitchplease.ca or, of course, wherever podcasts are found. Which Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry Productions and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to our endlessly patient producer. Greetings. And to Not Sorry Productions for having us. If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear my personal favorite thing which is Marcel struggling to pronounce your usernames. Go ahead, Marcel. Ah. Thanks to Clara Charlotte, E66A Scarequote, Doughboy1996, Harry Potter fan since 1999, Winged Elf Girl, Romeo Mola, or Ro My Omola, um, Imogenissima, the 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 Jack the Jackanory, Sophia Han Sophia Hangnell, uh, <clears throat> Robin Who. 13, Bruja Boy, Aiden Tack FW, Impossibly Curved, Be Boundless, and Shul Manatrix. How'd I do? Beautiful. Beautifully done. If you want to hear even more from us, don't forget to head over to patreon.com slash ohwitchplease to check out the many exciting forms of bonus content available for you. On our next episode, we are continuing our discussion of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. But until then... Later, witches! Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.